Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. I also do want to welcome, like the others have, those of you joining us online and those of you um, watching outside, just outside this room. As Elliot said, we're beginning a new message series today. We're going to be looking at what it is that makes a person truly extraordinary. What is the extra when added to an ordinary life makes someone extraordinary? Now, it turns out that our list of extras when added to a life is very different than what God says are the extras that make someone truly extraordinary. Every student of history, whether they believe in Jesus or not, has to at least admit that his impact on history was extraordinary. In fact, Jesus is so extraordinary that we mark time itself, our calendars, as either occurring before or after him. But to the people who lived when Jesus lived, he appeared for most of his life to be very ordinary. If you wanted to blend in 2,000 years ago in Palestine, you really couldn't do any better than being the son of a carpenter. That's what Jesus was. But then when Jesus was around 30 years old, he began to do some very extraordinary things. They were so extraordinary that we call them miracles. Now, these miracles created, created a buzz, and it gathered a crowd, people who just wanted to see him turn fish into enough food for thousands and heal the blind and all the other things he did. It drew a crowd. But it was his own resurrection that we just sang about, his resurrection from the dead that separated the crowd that had gathered into two categories, believers and unbelievers. It was the resurrection that really kind of marked a dividing line for people going forward. And the reason for that was not because there was less evidence for the resurrection than all the other miracles he'd done. The reason was because the resurrection gave the clear evidence that he really was who he had been claiming that he was, that he was, in fact, God in flesh. And if that's true, then all of a sudden, you can't just be amazed at Jesus. You have to make a decision about Jesus. You have to decide, are you going to obey him, God in flesh? or not. So the crowd separated between those who wanted to follow him and those who didn't, believers and unbelievers. So it's the resurrection that makes Jesus extra, extraordinary, and separates him from all of the other God ideas that are out there. No one else has ever claimed to rise from the dead because it's so easy to disprove. That extraordinary event, however, wasn't intended just to be a piece of amazing history. It was intended to be a way for people like us, ordinary people, to become truly extraordinary. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I walked into a furniture store. We'd been looking for some furniture, and we'd visited several stores. But almost immediately after we walked into this store, I could tell something was, was different about this store. And it took me a while to figure out what it was that was different. The furniture looked kind of similar to the other store. It was laid out similar to other stores, but something was different. Something was off. And all of a sudden, after about 10 minutes, I, I put my finger on what it was. They were playing Christmas music. Now, this was just like a week ago. And I turned to my wife and said, is that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in February? That is extraordinary. That is beyond ordinary. That's not the kind of music we hear this time of year. Now, I say that because it's pretty easy to be extraordinarily weird, but that's not the kind of extraordinary that we usually want. We want to be extraordinary in a good way, in an important way, in a way that 
really matters. But the challenge we have is so much of our life is really pretty ordinary. I mean, we, we may be amazed at our work for a while, but if you do it over time, whatever you do, it kind of begins to feel pretty ordinary as you get up every day and go to work. Marriage is pretty amazing, but marriages usually sink into kind of ordinary routines. Kids, if you're a parent, I mean, we all love our kids, and we all think they're extraordinary, but eventually family life starts taking its rhythm of just kind of ordinary. And our problems, our struggles, well, we have kind of ordinary struggles and problems. So how can we be extraordinary? Forty days after that extraordinary resurrection, Jesus returned to heaven. Then something really extraordinary began to occur. The numbers of Christ's followers began to explode. It was amazing. Far eclipsed anything that had happened when Jesus was here. Why did that happen? Had Jesus entrusted his message to an amazing organization of extraordinary people that were ready to carry this message forward and that's why it exploded? No. They were, for the most part, very ordinary people, those initial followers of Jesus Christ. Like us, they were just ordinary. The Apostle Paul, who started many of the churches in the first century and wrote a good portion of the New Testament, points this fact out in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Here's what he says. Think of what you were when you were called, when God called you to follow Jesus Christ. Just think of your situation in life. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. This is the kind way of Paul saying, look around. We're just a bunch of ordinary people here, us early Christians. Now, this verse contains a list of the three extras that back then, as well as now, in our eyes, tend to, we think, make a person extraordinary. We have kind of a top three of extras that make a person really extraordinary. And then the verses that follow this one I just read contain a contrasting list. It's God's top three extras list. So let's begin. We're going to contrast these this morning. So let's begin first by looking at our top three. These are the three extras that when added to an ordinary life, we think makes a person truly extraordinary. The first one is intelligence. Intelligence. Someone's intelligent, that's extraordinary. But Apostle Paul says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were really smart. He's not saying you're dumb, but you're not amazing in the intellect capacity. Intelligence, I mean, let's be honest, intelligence is really extraordinary. Years ago, I spoke at a conference for Christian college students, and during lunch, I got talking with one of those students, and I asked that student, uh, what are you studying? What's your area of study? And he turned to me and he said, I don't think you'd understand. <laughs> now, I, you know, that bothered me a little bit because I know I'm not the most intelligent person, but I, I think I have a somewhat adequate in intellect. And he was telling me, really, that I wasn't smart enough to understand what he was studying. So I said, try me. <laughs> Turns out, he's a PhD student working on a research project, his university with another university. And the project they're working on is how to get electricity 
to conduct across graphite. And if they're successful, he said, it would change a whole lot of technology. And as he was talking, I did a lot of nodding my head up and down, but it should have been side to side. It, it turns out he wasn't being arrogant. He was just being honest. He was just trying to protect me from embarrassment. And he was right. I, I, I understand what graphite is because I use pencils, so I know it's the stuff that's in pencils, but I'd never heard that electricity might possibly be transmitted across graphite, which can be really, really thin. So... He was right. I didn't understand. Now, this guy, after I talked with him for lunch, I walked away thinking, he's got a great future. He's smart. I mean, he was teaching Ph.D. physics while he was getting his Ph.D. in physics. And he was working on future technology. You know, a great intellect has a tremendous advantage in life. That's why we study. That's why we read. That's why we go to school. That's why we get degrees. And we're not wrong. It really is an advantage. But we all have an intellectual limit. There's some things that we know, and sometimes we know them really, really well, and we're really good at it, but then there's other areas of life that we don't really know. You know, I'd never heard that the substance in a pencil could conduct electricity. But conversely, this brilliant guy, this student I was talking to, he'd never heard about some of the truths that I was teaching. And this is the problem with our minds, they're limited. So it's entirely possible for us to have a great mind, to be brilliant in the eyes of other people, and know a lot of stuff that won't make you happy and won't stand the test of time and eternity. So intelligence is a great extra, but it's not on God's top three list. list. It's, it's just not enough. Number two on our top three list of extras is influence. Influence. Paul goes on to say, not many of you were influential. Influence is the power to get people moving in the direction you want. Now, that's pretty essential in order to make things happen and change the future. What is it then that generates influence? There's usually a couple things that that really drive the ability to have influence in life and and get things done. One is position. If you're in a position of influence or power, you can really get some things done. If you know the right people or you are the right person, you can make things happen. Last month, the builder who's working on this project asked us if we knew of anyone higher up in the city who could help us. And the reason was not because the city was not responsive. The city's been great. But there were a few questions that if we could have talked to someone with some influence, we might have been able to chart a path. And so they asked, do you know of anyone a little higher up in the city that that we could talk to about this issue? And we had to say, you know, honestly, right now we don't. We don't know anyone of influence personally. We don't have a relationship. We used to. Actually, when we were building this site originally. The head of the building department was a member here of the church. And the city manager attended the church. And there were a few times where it was really helpful to know some people of influence. The city's always been great with us, but you know, if you know the right people in any project, in any endeavor, it can really help. So position is is part of how influence occurs. Another great driver of influence is money. 
Your money is another way to generate a lot of influence. Because with money, you can hire people to do stuff. You can solve problems with money. And influence is not a bad thing. It's not bad to have position or know someone in position that can really help. It's not bad to have money and be able to use it for good things. We, without influence, very little would really happen in life. And so we need good people who have a lot of extra influence. But no matter how great our influence becomes, we will all fall short of having the power to make things happen that really, really matter to us. Turns out, if you're a parent, you discover this pretty early on, that you have less influence over your kids than you would like. Doesn't matter how much money you have, or what position is in whatever business or company you have, your influence over your kids, the ones that matter most to you, is limited. And of course, this past year, we've been reminded of the fact that we all have limited influence over our health, over the economy, over the health of others, those that we love. Influence is great, but it's, it's limited. And that's why influence, as good as it is, didn't make God's list of top three extras. Number three on our list is opportunity. Opportunity. Paul says, not many of you were of noble birth. Now, if someone is born into royalty, they are immediately given a set of opportunities that very few people ever get. They are instantly extraordinary. And they usually have a title that goes along at birth to announce the fact that they're extraordinary. Now, what did they do to gain this extra? Absolutely nothing. They just were born into a royal family. Now, we don't have royalty, formal royalty in this nation, but we do have royalty. We do have kings and queens of sorts that have that kind of influence over this culture and really in the world. And these are individuals who have been given all kinds of opportunity, and they've done well with it. Years ago, I don't know how many of you read the book on Steve Jobs, but I remember reading that book about Steve Jobs, and I was struck by his intellect, by his work ethic, by his drive, his creativity. And he gained, I mean, the influence that Steve Jobs had in this world is pretty amazing. But if you read his story, you realize that if it wasn't for a set of circumstances that were completely out of his control, he would never have been given the opportunity to do what he did. If he'd been born in a different place, or just a few years earlier or a few years later, he would have missed that boat. As smart as he was, as driven as he was, as creative as he was, it really came down to opportunity that had to happen in order for that to occur. Now, the opportunity to be extraordinary often involves being in the right place at the right time. And so if that's the extra that we're going to depend on, we're going to miss the boat or we're going to hit the boat, but there's little control we have over that extra. So these three extras really do make a person extraordinary. Intelligence, influence, opportunity are really extraordinary. But they're not on God's top three list. Why? The next couple verses, we find out why. Here's what it says in verses 27 through 29. But in contrast to these three, 
God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. What's being said here? This is really a list of what ordinary looks like. I mean, it begins with foolish things. Being foolish is ordinary. For every one example of human wisdom, there are a thousand examples of human stupidity, of human folly. You do not have to work hard to make dumb decisions. We just make dumb decisions. That's natural. We have to learn how to make good decisions. Those ordinary to be foolish. The next one on the list is, is the weak things of the world. Being weak is ordinary. You know, people pay good money for strength training. Nobody pays money for weakness training. Because it takes no effort to be weak. You just sit on your couch and watch TV, you're weak. You just kind of do what most people do, and you're going to be weak. If you want to be strong, that's going to require some extra effort. So being foolish is ordinary. Being weak is ordinary. And the next one is, chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things. He's talking about kind of the, the org chart, people who are on the lower end of the organizational chart of life. Having a low position is actually ordinary, more ordinary than having a high position. For every person at the top of a company or the top of a country, there are millions of ordinary people somewhere down the ladder. That's ordinary. And so the most extraordinary thing that God has ever done on earth, the church, Paul is saying, let's look at the first few decades of this, and if you look around, you discover it's mostly made up of the ordinary people, not the extraordinary ones. None of these people around this church, Paul says, speaking of the church in Corinth, are the ones that the city of Corinth are looking at for wisdom, and they're not in high position in the city government. They're, they don't have all of this strength. We're a bunch of ordinary people, Paul says. So why did God prefer the ordinary? Why does he do that? The end of this verse that we just read, we're given two reasons why God prefers ordinary people like us. The first is, it says, to nullify the things that are. What does that mean? What it's talking about is God wants to set aside or nullify, put an X through what we think is extraordinary and replace it with a completely different list of what is extraordinary. And the reason is because what stands out in this world, what everyone is clamoring for in this world, will not stand out in eternity. It has a shelf life to it. And if God used the exceptional by our standards to accomplish his work in this world, we would all get the wrong idea that that is what he truly thinks makes the top three. And it isn't. So he uses ordinary people to do his work. Now, there are some extraordinary, but for the most part, it's ordinary. And the reason is so that 
we get the lists right and don't live for the wrong list. That's the first reason to nullify the things that are. The second reason is so that no one could boast. In other words, God wants to do things in such a way where he gets the credit and not us. Because the important thing is not for people to turn their heads to us and be amazed at any one of us, but to turn their heads to God and be amazed at what he does. That's what will matter for eternity. One of my prayers through this construction process is as heads turn, because it's already happening. People are driving on the property. What's going on over there? Pretty soon we're going to have some graphics on the signs that will show the image of the kids building. And so there's going to be some curiosity. So I'm praying that as, as heads are turned towards this, who is building in a pandemic that people's hearts would turn to God? That's my prayer. That, that people wouldn't think, wow, what's going on? What's, what's, what amazing people are in that church? But what an amazing God would, would it take to do this kind of thing? That's what really matters. So what is the extra, then, that God adds to a life that makes it extraordinary? These are our top three. What are God's top three extras? Here they are, verse 30 of this same set of verses. It is because of him that you are on Christ Jesus, because of God that you belong to Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. And here's the three. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I'm going to explain what each of these three are, because we all know what intelligence is, we all know what influence is, we all know what opportunity is, but these three words may be a little fuzzier. So these three extras are added to a person when they decide to follow Jesus Christ. No one can earn these three, or no one is born into these three. Each of these three stand in sharp contrast to our top three. So I'm going to list them on the slide as we build this, because... They're in direct contrast, one by one. They line up in contrast to our top three. Let's begin with God's first on his list. The first is righteousness. Number one is righteousness. Righteousness is in contrast to intelligence. It is far more extraordinary than intelligence. Righteousness is how God measures IQ. Righteousness means being right with God. It means to do what God says is right. That's why the root of the word is right, righteousness. Intellectual intelligence comes with many advantages in life, as I said, but moral intelligence, doing the right thing, is a much bigger deal than being smart. It's much bigger. You know, if you are extraordinarily intelligent, but you can't conquer anger, or you don't know how to build a good marriage, or you you don't have a clue about how to navigate conflict, or you, you don't know how to fight temptation, you will be miserable. You will be empty. Brilliantly so, but you will be empty on the inside. Hosea 14.9 says this, it asks a great question at the end of this book in the Old Testament. It says, who is wise? Wisdom in the Bible means the ability to take God's ways, His truth, and apply them to daily life. So who is wise? 
he will realize these things. Who is discerning, he will understand them. What? What will he know? What will he understand? That the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. What this is saying is it's the truly smart people that really come to understand that, that God's ways are right. When God describes the way to do, say, marriage, or how to manage money, or how to raise kids, or how to handle anger, or how to resolve conflict, God is not just giving one of many opinions on the matter. He is describing reality. He is telling us, here's where the concrete wall is. It would really be helpful not to smash your head into this. Because this is real. This is not just an opinion on something you might want to do. This is reality in this area. And when something is real, we can discover it one of two ways. We can either open our eyes, see the wall, and make an adjustment, or we can close our eyes and stubbornly run right into the wall, then learn that way. We call that the school of hard knocks. That's how we learn. One of two ways. See it and adjust it or trip over it and fall. That's what this verse is talking about. The righteous walk in God's ways. The rebellious, they run into them. They fall. They stumble. You know, when you leave this campus, you can either use your eyes to walk out to your car or you can close your eyes and... It'll take a longer time, and it'll be more painful, but you just might eventually find your car. It's the same with God's ways. The same with what God says is right. You can walk in it, or you can stumble all over it. Now, when it comes to doing what God says, we tend to think we know better. That's what it means for us to close our eyes. We're not going to read the Bible. We're not going to figure out what it says because we're going to follow our gut. Would you follow your gut out to your car? No, but we do that in life all the time because, well, that's ordinary. We think we know better. And even when we run into enough walls and decide to do life God's ways, the problem is we still trip over his ways because we, we just still think we know better. And that means that we lack the capacity to really do what is right. It's like me trying to work with graphite. I lack the intellectual capacity. And we lack the moral capacity to do what is right all the time. Only Jesus can help us with this. Only he can put us right with God no matter how, how wrong we've been. And only he can actually increase our capacity to do what is right. It starts with a decision to follow Jesus, and it grows as you walk with him daily as you learn his word and as you apply it your moral capacity grows. This is righteousness. And God says, now that's extraordinary. Number two on his list is holiness. Holiness is much more extraordinary than influence. It stands in comparison to influence. It's more extraordinary than influence. The word holy means to, to be living for God's purposes. Holy is where we get the word holiday. It's holy day. That's where it comes from. And just like a holiday, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, 
A holy day is a day that's different from every other day because it has a different focus. It has a, a different purpose. And it's the same when we become holy. Our days have a different purpose to them. We are now living for God, not ourselves. This past year, I don't know if you've heard of this term, but I was introduced to a new word. It's called Blur's Day. Have you heard of Blur's Day? Blur's Day came out of the pandemic because suddenly all the days kind of began to look the same, and the markers that would indicate the different days of the week shifted because we were staying at home. And so people were asked, does anybody know what day it is? I don't know. Is it Wednesday? Is it Thursday? So eventually this term, I don't know where it came from, but it began to be used. It's just Blur's Day because all the days blur together. Now, a holy person, like a holy day, has a different purpose than an ordinary day. Their days are different. Today isn't just another blurs day. It isn't even just another Monday or Wednesday. No, today is a holy day. A day that is holy because we get to do what God wants to do, what he wants us to do today. That makes this day a different day makes it a holy day. We can do that every single day. Ordinary people live for their own advancement, their own pleasure every single day. We all wake up in selfish mode. You know, just a few hours of sleep and your heart is reset into selfish mode. And you just wake up, what do I want? I'm going to get it. And unless you take some effort to reset around what God wants, you're going to live another ordinary day, not a holy day. But holy people live their ordinary days for a larger purpose. Their days are not about doing what God wants. Their days are about doing what God wants them to do, not what they want to do. Now, to be holy doesn't mean to be morally elite. It means to wake up every day with this one question. What does God want me to do today? What does he want me to say? And with that question in mind, an ordinary work day can become extraordinary. But the challenge is it's so easy for us to forget to ask this question throughout the day and let this just become another blurs day. Living our ordinary days for God's purpose is far more extraordinary than having influence in this world. The reason is because influence in this world is limited to this world. But we are not limited to this world. We have been created in the image of God, which means we are designed not only to live on into eternity, but we are also designed with the capacity to do things now that echo all the way into eternity. And so it's a small thing for us to have tremendous influence in this world and nothing in eternity. That's a big loss. That's a big miss. We can rise to the top positions of this world. We can amass a top 100 fortune, but never make the kind of impact with our lives that you can if you decide to follow Jesus and live for God's purpose. In Christ, we can turn our ordinary days into extraordinary days. Now, number three on God's list of top extras, redemption. Redemption stands in contrast to opportunity. It's much more extraordinary than opportunity. To redeem means to, to buy back something that was sold. 
in our case, to buy back our past. Years ago, my grandmother ended up selling the family violin in a garage sale. It was a mistake. My mother found the owner and offered to buy the violin back, but he wouldn't sell it at any price. So it was a sad loss for my mom in particular. But we have sold something far more valuable than a family heirloom. We have all sold our past. In other words, we have exchanged time. We've exchanged our days for decisions that we now look back on and say, can I return that decision? Is is there a 90-day limit on what I can return? Is there a 30-day? Is there a three-year warranty on this? Can Can I return this decision? The answer, of course, is no, we can't. We can't just return the past because we don't like it. Now, we can make better decisions this next week, but we can never return what we bought last week. And that's because time is a non-refundable purchase. We exchange time for history. And what that means is we can't redeem our past. But there is someone who can. And that someone is Jesus Christ. He's the only one with the power to do this. The proof of his power to do this is the resurrection. You see, if Jesus can rise from the dead, can reverse, can undo that act, then what part of my past or your past is beyond his power to resurrect, to redeem? Nothing. But in order for Jesus to redeem our past, we have to give it to him. That's what we do when we ask him for forgiveness. We give him our past. And we have to give him our future. That's what it means when we decide to follow him. Redemption is much more certain than opportunity. Opportunity feels like kind of a roll of the dice. You either were in the right place at the right time or you weren't. Who knows if you're going to have opportunity or not. Redemption is different. It's a gift that no one on earth could give you to turn the wreckage of our past into something that we don't deserve in the future? (laughs) That is extraordinary. No one can do that but Jesus. So as it says in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, because of God. He opened your eyes up to see this. Who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. These top three are only found in Jesus Christ. So today I want to close with just one question. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you believe in him. I'm not asking if you admire him. I'm asking if you have decided personally to accept his mercy for your past and to obey him in your future. If not, I invite you to be truly extraordinary. It begins with this decision about Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you are given these three extras. Now, in the weeks to come in this series, we're going to talk about how God builds on this, how he grows these three, and how he actually adds more extras to our life that makes us truly extraordinary. I hope you can join us. Let's pray. Father, we... um, Well, you know, 
We're just ordinary people. We've got some intelligence, but there's just so much we don't know. We've got some influence, but not enough in the things that, we, that really matter in life. There's all kinds of stuff that we, if we could, we would change, but we can't. We don't have that kind of influence. And you've given some of us some amazing opportunities, but there's a lot of stuff that we just don't get to do because we weren't at the right place at the right time. But we thank you that those three that we have almost no control over is not what really makes us extraordinary. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, for making us right with you, for giving us a purpose in our daily life, and then for taking our past and turning it into a future that we certainly do not deserve. We pray that you would grow us in this. We pray that as we relate to the people you put in our life who do not, do not know you, that you would help us figure out how we can serve them, love them, and represent this amazing truth to them. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.